Good morning, everybody. How are you? Good. I'm Kenny. Uh, if you don't know me or recognize my face, I get to be here every so often from our Fullerton campus to, to preach and be with you all, so it's good to be here. Thanks for putting up with me. You know, this song we just sang, I know it was new for us, and so maybe for many of you, if you hadn't heard it, the words kind of come fast and furious. Um, but it's written by Paul Belosh, who's written a lot of things that we sang, or we, we've sung at Grace over the years. But I appreciate at times when, when someone will write a song for the church to sing that we don't often say those things in a song. You notice that in this song? It's different than a lot of songs we sing. A lot of songs we sing, rightly so, are about Jesus or about the cross and what he did there or about the character of God and how he's shown himself faithful through the past or, or various things or maybe the resurrection um, or pr- songs of prayer. But this song has a singing about things that we don't often sing about and puts them into a form of, of praise and hopeful expectation, doesn't it? Um, Just think about some of the things that we just sang because what we just sang and these things that we believe are going to happen one day are the very things that Eric, when he was preaching last week, pointed out that scoffers will come scoffing. That we believe one day Jesus will return bodily, visibly. That he still is God-man and he will forever be and we will see him with our eyes. We believe this, that one day he will show his power on earth in a way that will be undeniable and unmistakable. One day Jesus is going to judge the nations, all the peoples of the earth. Jesus as judge, uh, will, they will stand before him or that he will reward his servants Jesus will personally reward all those who have yielded uh, and surrendered to him in repentance and faith and he will reward them, us. And he will reign on earth as the king of kings. All of these things that were just packed into this song that we sang and believe were mocked in, in Peter's day and they're mocked in our day. Maybe you've been mocked. Maybe someone has personally even said to you, you really believe those things are going to happen? Really? In some form they've said to you, where is this promise of his coming? Like 2 Peter 3, 4 says some scoffers would say, which isn't a question, as Eric pointed out. It's, it's meant to be a, it hasn't happened. That's not ever going to happen. Well, as I listened to Eric's sermon from last week and thought about that scoffer's question, um, the thought occurred to me, one reason as a Christian that that mocking question can be unsettling for my faith and it can sow seeds of doubt, maybe for you too, is because I can ask that very same question internally as a Christian. It has a different tone, so the scoffers come scoffing, where is this promise coming? But have you ever asked yourself internally, where is this promise coming? In other words, what is God waiting for? Where is he? Doesn't he know how bad things are? Can't he hear the groaning of his people? Doesn't he see all the blood and all the brokenness and all the sadness and death and sin? Does he care? How could he let all this keep going on without doing something? Have you ever felt that question internally? 
Well, if that was a nagging question in Peter's day that he felt he needed to address, how much more so for us 2016 where the Lord has not come back for over 2,000 years since he said he would come again? In fact, it's not like that question is unreasonable for a Christian to ask given the fact that Jesus himself said, I'm coming soon. The last book in the Bible, Revelation, um, was a series of visions that God gave to the Apostle John as an old man of things that were still to come. And in many of these visions, Jesus himself talks to John and tells him of some of the things that are to come. And four times in Revelation, Jesus himself says, chapter 3, verse 11, I am coming soon. Chapter 22, verse 7, Behold, I'm coming soon. A few verses later, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. And the last two verses of the Bible end with Jesus testifying to this, saying, Surely I am coming soon. And the last verse, verse of your Bible is our response to that. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Soon. The words of Inigo Montoya from The Princess Bride struck me. Oh, you know the ones I'm thinking of. Jesus, you keep using this word soon. I, I don't think it means what you think it means. That's the sense behind what Peter's speaking into here. This doesn't feel like soon. I can't tell you how many times, I've lost count over the years here at Grace, how many elder meetings I have sat in with Dave Talley over the years and how many times I've heard him quietly under his breath with a sigh say, come Lord Jesus. <laughs> you, you live with the Talley's for a while. You've heard, you, he, he does all the time. Sometimes in a meeting, it would be us talking about current events violence that's happened in the world or persecution of the church or just terrible things that have happened in the world and he would go, oh, come Lord Jesus. Sometimes it was as we were talking about the stuff going on here among us, the, the stuff that the people of grace are enduring, trials and temptation and suffering and pain and loss and, and we'd be praying for those things and he'd go, oh, come Lord Jesus. Sometimes it would be as we were being honest with each other and confessing sin and acknowledging the struggle that we have and the frustration with the same patterns and the same ways that we fall into dishonoring God in our lives and, and praying for one another in this. And he'd say, ah, oh, come Lord Jesus. What are the things right now that make you long for Jesus' return? Just think for a minute, rhetorical question. Maybe jot some of those things down at the top of your note page to keep in your mind as we spend the rest of this time this morning. What causes you to sigh and say, come Lord Jesus? Because Peter has a word for you and he calls you beloved as he says it. It struck me the first seven verses of this chapter that, that Eric preached last week, Peter turns to scoffers who mock with the question, where is the promise of his coming? And he gives some words for them. And then here in our three verses, 8 through 10, he has a word for his beloved as we wrestle with that same question. 
We can be unsettled that Jesus hasn't come back yet. And so here's my outline, very simple. Three things about God's character that Peter wants us never to forget as we're troubled about Jesus not coming back yet. He's eternal, he's patient, and he's just. That's enough for us to occupy the rest of our time. He's eternal, he's patient, he's just. Let's read this section, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. I want to pause then and pray that God would help us in the hearing. Verse 8. After his word to the mockers, he says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. But he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Pray. Uh, Lord, help us here. Encourage us here. Um, uh, Show us your glory uh, as it's revealed to us in the scripture about um, your eternal nature that you have always been and always will be before anything else that you created existed. You are. Um, Pray that would comfort us this morning. I pray as we Reflect on your patience and the great restraint of your just wrath toward all the sin that's happened on this earth, that that would leave us astounded, would create the sense of urgency Peter wants it to give us, and comfort as well. God, I pray as we think about your justice too, it would sober us, um, adding to that sense of urgency that we feel in being part of your redeeming work until Jesus comes back. So we need to see you here, Lord. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen? All right, number one, God is eternal. Verse eight, in the beginning of nine, Peter wants us to remember that God is eternal. Why would he want us to remember this? Why is this a comfort to us as it feels like it's been so long? Well, a couple things. It tells us that God's perspective of time is different than ours. It also says that God's perspective of time is more accurate than ours. First of all, it's different than ours, way different. Verse eight, read it again. He says, he goes a little Dwight Schrute on us right here. He says, do not overlook this fact, beloved. Fact. With the Lord, one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. Don't overlook this fact. Peter's quoting from Psalm 90. He lifts that last phrase about a thousand years is like a day from Psalm 90 verse four. But let's look at the opening verses of Psalm 90. Who's got their hands on the steering wheel? Is that me? Yes, here we go. It says, Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you'd formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Eternity past, eternity future, you are God. You then return man to dust and you say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it's past, 
or as a watch in the night. And the psalm goes on to say that if the Lord blesses you with 70 or 80 years of life or more, even that is like a sigh. It's just like a a breath stacked up next, next to the everlasting I am. I was thinking about if you live to the age of 80, that's 12 and a half lifetimes to get to 1,000 years. And so even 12 and a half lifetimes is like yesterday or less than a day to God. This is one of those verses that's supposed to blow your mind with the bigness of God, to remind you, God exceeds my, the limits of my understanding. Sort of like I, I came across this article, a NASA article in my news feed this last week. Maybe some of you read it, but it said that, that the Hubble telescope and what they're continuing to be able to see of our universe with the Hubble telescope has recently leading astronomers to change their estimation of how many distant galaxies are out there. Okay, you know what their former estimate was? 100 to 200 billion. You know what their new estimate is? Like 10 times that, the article said. They're beginning to think there might be 2 trillion galaxies, not 2 trillion planets, but entire galaxies. My pea brain, I just laughed when I read that article because 100 billion and 2 trillion are equally inconceivable numbers to me, right? It's like, what does it matter if it's 2 trillion? It's 2 kajillion, right? And But the point is, here, God created all of that with a word. He sustains it by the word of his power. So think about the, we can't, the power involved in all the suns and swirling planets and galaxies and everything. And he upholds it all by a word of his power and he holds it all in his hand, anthropomorphically speaking. In the same way that that just blows our mind, Peter is saying eons of time are like this to God. So his perspective of time is much different, Peter says. And he implies that it's more accurate. Look at the beginning of verse 9 and what he implies. He says, so beloved, the Lord's not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. In other words, how are you counting slowness? If your accounting of time leads you to conclude that God is dragging his feet, or delaying, or maybe backing out on his promise, or drawing this out longer than it ought to, Peter says you're not counting properly. That's not how God counts slowness. I love this sentence from Schreiner's commentary on 2 Peter. He said, what seems agonizingly long to us is a whisker of time to him. It's a great phrase. It's just a a whisker of time, what feels agonizingly long to us. And Peter says, don't overlook this fact. What we perceive as long delay is not from God's perspective. He knows what he's doing. But it strikes me that that doesn't invalidate how it feels for us in the waiting, right? We can know that objectively and believe it and trust that that's true, but our feeling from the inside, it still feels long, right? Two encouraging thoughts I had this week about um, as we wait and it feels long to us, how, why do we should be encouraged. First one is this, Jesus is sympathetic to our experience of time because of the incarnation. That's amazing to me. That God the Son the eternal God, 
when he was conceived of Mary and born and took on flesh and became the God-man, he put himself in the vantage point to experience slowness as we experience slowness. So kids in the room, Jesus was a kid. You know the feeling as a kid? Adulthood will never get here. That just seems an eternity away. Driver's license, turning 18, seems an eternity away. Jesus experienced the the waiting of childhood because it says he grew in stature just like any other kid. And in knowledge, he learned and had to learn and grow in wisdom. He understands the feeling of waiting. Struck me that in, in the few verses back, Peter talked about Lot back in Sodom and Gomorrah. And his experience of day after day being surrounded with gross immorality and wickedness and it was tormenting his soul as he waited for God to do something, right? How much more Jesus in his first coming? 30 years of waiting for his ministry to begin, surrounded by sin and the effects of the fall. How many funerals did Jesus attend in those first 30 years? How much wickedness as he, the innocent, sinless son of God, walked among us? And then as he waited three years of ministry, teaching to crowds, driving toward the cross, Jesus understands slowness, how it feels to us. Even think of the cross. As Jesus hung on the cross, don't you think those hours on the cross were agonizingly slow to Jesus. Imagine Jesus at Lazarus' tomb says Jesus wept. I'm sure that behind those tears in part was a sense of how long, Father? How long is death going to do this? Destroy people make them sad and grieve and mourn and weep? How long is death going to continue? And Jesus wept, even though he, was, he is the resurrection and life. It's because Jesus understands what slowness feels from our perspective. And so when we pray and we cast our cares on our Savior, he's sympathetic. I hope that encourages you this morning. Another thought of encouragement is this. That yes, all of our waiting is a whisker of time from God's perspective, uh, and Jesus understands it, but also one day in glory, you, Christian, will be able to see time from God's perspective. Right now, we can only take his word for it, but one day we will be at a vantage point looking back in hindsight where we'll go, Paul was right. That was slight momentary affliction compared to this eternal weight of glory that we're experiencing now. I have no doubt we'll think back to that last verse of Amazing Grace that John Newton wrote that maybe you've sung a thousand times in your life and we'll say, it's true. I want us to sing it. Let's sing it right now. When we've been there 10,000 years Bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise. First begun, 
Right now we sing that with faith and hope. One day we will sing that from the experience of that. Is that good news? So don't be troubled that Jesus hasn't returned yet. It feels long. God is not dragging his feet. He's not changed his mind. He will not be unfaithful to his promise. He will come at exactly the right moment. So what else does Peter not want us to forget that will help us in the waiting? Not only is God eternal, but two, he's patient. Let's read verse nine again. The Lord's not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He's patient. He doesn't wish for sinners to perish. He wants something different for sinners. Sometimes in the Bible, the word perish just means die, physically die. Uh, But sometimes it means much more than that. Like here, we know that Peter doesn't mean die here because he says those who reach repentance, the implication is, will never die or perish. And we know that everyone who has repented of their sins since Jesus came has died, right? So he means something bigger than this. He means what Jesus meant when he used the word when he said in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So perish, Peter means by that, is the antithesis of eternal life. It's uh, eternal separation from God as the final act of his judgment upon sin. To perish is to fall under the just wrath of God. So you might ask, this is not familiar to you, why is God so angry? Why is perishing even on the table? Why is there something even more terrible than physical death? Well, the Bible says it in many places. I want to point us to just one. Romans 1, Paul talks about why the wrath of God is revealed. Why God is going to display his wrath toward people. He says it's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Makes me think of our passage last week, right? These scoffers deliberately overlooking facts that Peter would have said have been made clear to you. Paul's saying the same thing. What can be known about God is plain to them because God's shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God. Here's why. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but instead they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. God is creator and he's a loving creator, which means a couple of things. One, Paul said, that makes him deserving of our highest honor and value. That we would put him above all other things that he's made in our hearts as important and worthy of having and knowing. And he didn't create us because he needed something to be fulfilled in himself. He's not a needy God. He created us simply because we could be blessed by knowing him and enjoying him and living with him forever. The fact that you're breathing today is a sign that God wants to bless you. He wants you to know him and enjoy him 
and glorify him in that enjoying of him. And as creator, it also means God's in charge. That means we answer to him and he can tell you what to do and what not to do. He can tell you what's right and wrong. He can tell you what's true and false. And ever since Adam and Eve were tempted to doubt God's character, take matters into their own hands and rebel against their loving creator, we all in Adam's line are born with the same rebellious hearts, the same bent to make other things God's made the center of our life. And Paul and Peter call that ungodliness. And it's against ungodliness that the wrath of God is gonna be revealed. And lest you think that ungodliness is only just those wicked people who do outwardly obvious, heinous things and, and shake their fist at God and, and deliberately break every command, godly, godlessness often looks very nice. It just looks like treating God as irrelevant because whatever this thing for you is that you love and you order your life around to have and to, to enjoy and to participate in is enough and you're satisfied with that, that's godlessness as well. It's failing to give God the honor that he's due. And God takes this seriously and personally and he will judge it one day. But praise God, he's also incredibly merciful and gracious. In fact, many times in the Bible, he says, my name is uh, the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger, uh, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's why Peter can say here that his preference is that sinners would reach repentance. He says, he does not wish that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance because God has made a way to make peace. He's made an out, a way out from under his wrath, if you will take it. And it's simply this. That's what the cross is all about. The cross is how God simultaneously upholds his justice and dis displays himself to be perfectly just and punishes sin as it deserved and also simultaneously can spare sinners by his grace and show his love toward them. He becomes our substitute. The Son of God becomes man and he goes to the cross and as an innocent, he stands in our place and God allows him to be treated the way we deserve even though Jesus perfectly honored the Father every moment of his life. And because of that great exchange, the righteous one, Jesus, for the unrighteous one, us, we can be brought back to God. A peace treaty has been established and the terms God offers to us are simple. Surrender. Acknowledge that there's nothing you can do to get out from under that wrath. It has to be Jesus. And call on his name and be saved. That's what it means. Calling on his name means saying, God, in Jesus' name, please forgive my sin. This is what God wishes for you, Peter's saying here. And I don't, I don't know all of you in this room Many of you in this room have reached repentance and that describes your heart. You have surrendered in that way to God and put all of your hope at remaining in God's love forever in Jesus' work for you. But if you haven't, I wanna ask you this morning, would you? As you 
sit and hear me talking about sin and consequences of sin and honoring God as God and standing before a holy God. And maybe for your life, you've, you don't live by God's standard. You have your own set of standards and you have your own right and wrong and way of living. But probably if you were honest, you'd have to confess you failed to even live up to that standard, let alone God's standard. Don't leave here today without acknowledging those things to God, turning to God in Jesus' name, being saved. That is why Jesus hasn't returned yet. That's why we're all sitting in here today. Give you another opportunity to do that. That's God's heart. Question for us, do we share God's heart? Do we feel that deeply about that? that none would perish, but that all would reach repentance? Is that our earnest wish? I read an article a few weeks ago that laid me low. Two questions here. The pastor was talking about over his decades of ministry in the church, how has he thought about church growth and sought to continue to be a growing church, not just in getting Christians to move over from some other good church to his church, but grow in people trusting Christ. And he said, these two questions we've tried to keep at the the forefront as elders and as a church in our preaching. Here's the questions. One, do we really believe people are perishing forever without the gospel? And do we love them? He says the first is a theological question. The second is a moral question. Are we thinking rightly about heaven and hell and faith and the gospel? And then are we feeling rightly toward people, compassion like Jesus, compassion like Paul who said he agonized that his kinsmen, his fellow Jewish brothers had reject, were rejecting Jesus? Do we feel that? Those questions sting because at least I'll, I'll confess I'm aware of how often in my day-to-day interactions with people, functionally, I act as though I believe everyone's gonna be saved. Doesn't matter what I do, doesn't matter what we do, doesn't matter what the church does, it'll it'll just happen. I don't believe that. It's not what the Bible says, but practically, often I interact with people as if that were the case without the sense of urgency of these things that I believe. Honest confession, as as recent as Friday, two days ago. Friday morning, I still had sermon prep to do. The whole day was set aside for that. I was headed to the office over in Fullerton to do that, and I needed a haircut. So I stopped on my way first thing in the morning to get a haircut. And I sit for about a half hour waiting for my turn in the chair, and the conversation in the room, all these guys cutting hair, all these guys getting their hair cut, it was clear to me a lot of guys in the room probably didn't love Jesus. (laughs) I'll just leave it at that. So I sat there listening to this conversation, and then I get up in the chair, and the guy who normally cuts my hair, he knows I'm a pastor. We've talked a little before, even a couple of times about the Bible. Um, And he says, so are you off today? Are are you working today? What do you have to do today? (laughs) I say, well, actually... (laughs) I'm preaching on Sunday at my church, and so I, I got to go finish that. Oh, really? He just cut my hair behind me. You know, what, what are you preaching on? <laughs> Room full of guys, football game on, everybody's talking. I'm going to have to say this loudly for him to hear me. He's behind me, right? And I said, not the loudest voice, um, well, uh, that Jesus is coming again. That's what I'm preaching on. And there was just this long silence. He didn't give me nothing like, oh, really? Or, uh, I mean, no, like, let's keep this thing. It was just this silence behind me. Clip, 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 clip. <laughs> I sat there for like two minutes in my head. 
am I going to keep the ball rolling with this conversation? Or am I, for the sake of awkwardness and avoiding it and fear of man, going to just let it go? He obviously doesn't want to talk about this. Took the off ramp. (laughs) Rest of the haircut, small talk, pay my 15 bucks, get in my car, and as I'm driving away, here's the words in my head, the Lord is patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Today is another day Jesus hasn't returned, and it's another day to be part of God's redemptive work. And I got to my office, and I put my computer on my desk, and I just hit my knees and prayed. I just said, Lord, please help me to understand and feel the urgency of this reality right here because I don't always. The busyness of life just crowds it out and the fear of man presses it to the side, makes me rationalize and excuse there'll be another opportunity. My hair is gonna keep growing. So let me hold up an example to you actually then of who is a person who has been a model uh, to me of this sort of heart. Mark Hopson, maybe many of you know him. He and Shelley were here many years at Grace. He then was working with California Schools Project, which their goal was to reach every student in California. Now that's become the National School Project, which he's now based in Chicago area. In this last week or so, he was named the president now of National Schools Project. And talk about a lofty goal. This is their vision statement in three words. Reach every student. Reach every student. No student perishes, all reach repentance. That's Mark's heart. And I've known Mark and been able to see his life for long enough here at Grace and and day-to-day to know that that's not just a platitude on a chalkboard that he holds up for a photo op, but it drives him. On, on school campuses and meeting with high school students and training up leaders, that's how his heart beats. And it beats that way because that's how God's heart beats. And may that be how our heart beats at Grace. That's worthy of us spending some time praying at the end of this service and in our grace groups and, and this week. May God stir this earnestness up in us. Lastly, be comforted as Jesus has not returned yet. God's eternal. It'll happen at the right time. He's patient. There's a very good reason why he's not returned yet. He has more mercy to show. I couldn't help this last week thinking of some of our folks like the Lotzes in Feliziland and the Hermans in Chad. I was thinking about the tension that we can feel as Christians between one moment, come Lord Jesus, and we can also then feel like, not yet Lord Jesus, can't we? Think about the Hermans in, uh, in Chad and uh, Jeremy having one or two conversations beginning to open the Bible with a, an a, a Arab, a Arabic nomad. And I, I'm sure he wants Lord Jesus to come, but I'm sure he is delighted that Jesus hasn't come back yet. There's more mercy to be shown. So number three reason to be encouraged when Jesus hasn't returned is that God is just. That should assure us that he will not fail to return. I would boil the gist of verse 10 here down to something like this. He will not let even the smallest act of evil slip through the cracks and go unpunished. Justice will be done because God is just. You know, I was thinking of Jesus' first coming and how Jesus talked about his first coming. And he said things like this in John three seventeen. 
about his first coming, he said, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, to judge the world. That's not why Jesus came the first time. But in order that the world might be saved through him. So Jesus came first to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus comes first to put himself on the receiving end of God's justice in our place. Which I think helps me as I consider the severity and the fearfulness of that Jesus will come the second time, the Lamb administering God's justice. First he came with mercy. And today there's still mercy. But when he returns, the lamb will administer justice. And two things Peter says about that justice. First, he says, um, it's gonna be sudden and unexpected. Verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Jesus talked like that. Paul talked like that. Peter talked like that. The analogy is many will be going about business as usual, unsuspected, unsuspecting and unaware, and it will catch them by surprise. Terrible surprise. It'll be sudden when justice finally comes. And secondly, his justice will be thorough. I think that's the point of of this, this very brief synopsis snapshot of the cataclysmic things that are gonna happen when the lamb returns with a sword. It's a picture of purging like fire, burning away everything and laying bare all that's been done on the earth. He says, first, the heavens will pass away with a roar. But but just just a side note, these three next phrases, if you're reading your NIV or your NASB or your ESV, depending on your English translation, there's some different words here. And I'll just sum it up to say, for the first two phrases, uh, it's because some of these words can mean a couple of different things. And so depending on the meaning, it might say, for example, in the second phrase, heavenly bodies, or it might say elements. So let me just take each one of these phrases briefly without missing the main point that Peter has. So first phrase, the heavens will pass away with a roar. Heavens could mean the sky and the universe, all that we look up from earth and see that's filled with galaxies and, and things like that. So he might mean all of that will pass away, like the clouds be rolled back as a, or the sky being rolled back as a scroll, as it says later in Revelation. Or it could mean heavens like the spiritual realm. So he could be saying that on that day, an act of judgment is going to happen upon the spiritual realm, and then he's going to get to physical. I think what he means is first is sky. It could mean either one of those. But I think he means first all that expanse that we look up at is going to pass away. And then he moves, next phrase, the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, or the elements will be burned up. So it either means the elements, the stuff of which all physical is made out of, and earth and fire and air and water, matter, is going to be burned up. That's the literal word, the building blocks of a thing. Or it could also mean heavenly bodies. That was also a sense that that word was used in Peter's day. I think it's that, I think it means the heavenly bodies, meaning all of the basic stuff that fills up all of that sky. I think there's a progression. It's starting from the skies will pass away and everything that it contains is gonna be burned up and then it moves down to this last phrase and what's gonna happen on the earth? The earth and the works done on it will be exposed or will be found. If you're reading uh, the NA. SB, it says something different. It says the works, the earth and the works will be burned up. 
ESV says exposed, NIV says will be laid bare. So which, which is it? Well, here's the 32nd version, uh, version of this is a lot of Greek manuscripts of 2 Peter have the word that translates will be burned up. But some, fewer, but earlier ones have this word that's a little bit more confusing, will be found, will be, will be, ex- it will be made manifest, and it's more likely that the harder one to reconcile is probably the original one rather than the easier one. So that's why NIV or ESV goes with the idea is being laid bare or exposed, that, that the picture is with all this destruction and passing away and burning up, the purpose result of it is everything is cleared away and n- there's nowhere to hide. I think this is very similar in nature to the description in Revelation 6 of the events that are going to take place when Jesus returns. In Revelation 6, John has been giving these visions of one day these final judgments are going to come about and and the the analogy is there's like a, a scroll with different seals on it and when the last seal finally breaks off, all the judgment will be complete and we get to the sixth seal in the vision that John has been given and this is where the Lamb returns and it says, John says, I looked in this vision and behold, there was a great earthquake quake and the sun became black as sackcloth and the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale cataclysm and the sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up sounds a lot to me like like the the heavens passing away and then we moved to earth in this vision and every mountain and island was removed from its place and the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, not just the rich and powerful, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne, from the judge. Hide us from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? I think this is the image Peter's talking about here. One commentator I read paraphrases that, the gist of it like this. He says, the picture is indeed that of stripping off everything that stands between the eye of God and the earth so that all those things that human beings thought they had been getting away with or thought that God did not see are suddenly exposed to his unblinking eye. It's a picture of thoroughness, that justice is going to come and not one evil deed will somehow slip through unnoticed by the lamb. It's the justice of the lamb. On the day that the lamb returns as judge, if you are not already hidden in the lamb, then Peter's saying there will be nowhere to hide from the lamb. That's the point. And the fact that he hasn't come back yet means you can still hide yourself in the lamb as we were talking about before. I would love to talk with you about that. If you'd like to ask me questions or pray, come find me right up after the service. And Christian, as we finish, I just want you to be encouraged. God's justice and his holy uh, righteousness like Caleb had us thinking about at the beginning of the service should remind us or uh, encourage us uh, and make us certain that he will not fail to send Jesus one day. In other words, as we think back through the history of the Bible and the various times at which God showed us small doses of his holy anger towards sin, maybe certain stories are coming to mind, 
Egypt, the plagues, upon the nation of Israel as they're wandering in the wilderness, times where he gives all of Israel over to Babylon to be oppressed. We see these glimpses of God's justice being done in part, and then we see the cross, which is the ultimate picture, the clearest picture we've ever seen of how seriously God takes sin. And we are to see all those evidences that God is just and be confident that even though it seems like it's been a long time, he will bring justice. So let's thank the Lord for that. Let's thank the Lord for his patience. Pray about how we deal with all of this delay and what we do during this time and pray um, for our faithfulness in the waiting. I want us to pause. We have a few minutes here. I want to take us, take one minute to be quiet and for you to pray quietly with the Lord and talk to him about these things we've been thinking about. Maybe the eternal aspect. Maybe the stuff you're struggling with right now in life has you saying, please come back, Jesus. It feels so long and you need to cast those cares on him uh, right now and ask him to give you peace of heart knowing that he has not, uh, he, he knows how long it feels and he's not delaying unnecessarily. Maybe you need to talk to God um, about same thing I confessed, a, a general sense of lack of compassion for those who are perishing and involvement in it. Anyway, take a moment Uh, Pray, ask the Lord what you need to hear this morning.